You better listen, my brother, cause if you do, you can hear their voices still calling from across the years. And they're crying across the ocean, they're crying across the land, and they're willing to we all come to understand. None of us are free, none of us are free. All right. Well, welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Network's Wednesday live stream. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab. We focus on labor, political economy, art, and culture. And my co-host tonight is Patrick Dixon. Patrick, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. Pleased to be joining you, Evan, from about half an inch of snow in Arlington, Virginia. I'm one of the producers of the Labour History Today podcast, and I'm excited about our lineup of guests this evening. And behind the scenes, we have the one and only Chris Garlock, who is the executive producer, and Harold Phillips is always helping with the social media for the Labour Radio Podcast Network. And we have a great show this evening. Our first guest is Kayla Blotto, who is the president of the nonprofit's Professional Employees Union, and she's going to be discussing why white-collar workers need unions and unionization efforts for nonprofit workers. Uh, Patrick, could you talk a little bit about our second guest? Yeah, I've got an equally awesome guest. I'm going to be speaking to Tim Sheard about the Pandemic Nurses Diary, an exciting new publication from Hardball Press. Great. And uh, before that, we are going to be sharing a short segment from another one of our Labor Radio podcasts, partners, uh, Labor Radio, based in Canada, and they have Solidarity, Solidarity News, and so we're going to play that now. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor report recorded on Wednesday, December 16th, 2020. I'm Mark Boulanger. Teachers around the world are working hard to protect their students and open schools safely as the pandemic continues its awful course. They are being supported by unions and labor federations such as Education International. EI is the global union for teachers and other educators. It represents more than 32 million union members in 178 countries. In a recent webinar about the pandemic and teaching, the General Secretary of EI, David Edwards, said the key to safely opening schools is to listen to the teachers. For years, education systems have been more a casino for investors than a proving ground for innovation. When more than a billion students were forced out of schools, millions of teachers adapted to distant practice, the vast majority without the tools, training, or time, but nevertheless persisting. Taking the lead to keep education going for millions of, schools, of students. Millions of There's new evidence that the health crisis is an education crisis. The vast majority. We are in all this together. There will be no recovery or forward momentum unless we build solidarity. And this can't just be the unions or the progressive community, but a global solidarity for a strong public sector that puts people first. Certain groups in the community, but especially teachers, 
enjoy a level of trust when we speak about the importance of vaccines and delivering the science about their efficacy. As a profession and as a federation, we are deeply committed to the fight against disinformation. And that's it. Labor news you can use. You can find our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Welcome back, and uh, very excited to have Kayla Blotto be joining us this evening. Kayla, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, it's a very important topic, especially um, in, around Washington, D.C. There's so many nonprofit folks. My background is in nonprofit. So could you begin talking a little bit about what is the Nonprofit Professional Employees Union? And since you're the president, uh, what is some of the work that you're doing right now? Yeah, so the Nonprofit Professional Employees Union is a local of IFPTE, the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. Um, and we represent over 30 different nonprofits across the country. Uh, we represent workers at think tanks and advocacy groups. Um, I personally work at the Economic Policy Institute as my full-time job. I'm the director of media relations there. And EPI was actually the first unit to organize with NPEU way back in 1998. And um, since then, we've grown to representing over 30 different units across the country. Um, we represent workers at places like Center for American Progress, Washington Center for Equitable Growth, um, Community Change. Um, and we just announced a new one uh, yesterday, the Animal Legal Defense Fund. So we're growing. We have a ton of nonprofit workers that want to be part of a union, and um, we're helping them achieve a more equitable workplace. Well, we will talk about that victory, and congratulations on that. Um, a lot of people think about nonprofits as being a bunch of do-gooders. And so the first question for someone completely outside of the, this sector and with little understanding about unions, why are these do-gooders, why do they need a union? Well, nonprofits um, are unfortunately part of this capitalistic exploitative economy that we're all a part of. Um, and even though a lot of them have really great missions, um, a lot of times they fall short in expressing those, those pro-labor progressive worker values in their, to their own staff. Um, and, you know, especially um, we know from data that, you know, people are not, you know, having an advanced degree and being in a white collar organization, um, people are not immune from things like discrimination. And it actually, you know, pay increases actually get worse with the more education that you have. Um, and so having a union is really important to basically making sure that um, our voice is heard. Um, and that there are mechanisms in place for dealing with um, issues that arise and creating a more equitable and democratic workplace. I think uh, from my experience in nonprofits, some of the people on the top can make upwards of 100 to 200, 250, or even more than that, $1,000. Yep. <laughs> yeah, but per, per year, and then they could be paying associates $30,000 a year and, uh, and it's all coming into from the same pool of cash that's being raised. Um, could you talk a little bit about this article you wrote 
uh, about a year ago in these times on the answer to burnout at work isn't this self-care it's about unionizing yeah yeah i think we're really seeing that right now during the pandemic especially we've seen a surge in workers wanting to organize i mean you know we're all burnt out we've all been on a million zoom calls um working from home and, and you know a lot of us we're lucky you know we get to work from home and um you know but a lot of people have childcare obligations or family responsibilities um, but having a union really does create a safeguard and, and some certainty. Um, and so, you know, it's, and even without, you know, even without the pandemic, there's so many toxic things in nonprofit culture that, you know, you hear from management maybe to just, you know, relax or, you know, there's also all sort of people who will want to sell you candles and massages and all that stuff. Uh, but that isn't really going to create systemic change and, create more power for the workers in order to actually change the issues that are really affecting them. And so we definitely recommend forming a union. Um, that's not to say self-care isn't important. Obviously it's all super important taking care of your mental and physical health, but um, you know, forming a union is really one way to create that systemic change and rebalance the power at your workplace so that you can actually address some of these issues that are making it such a stressful environment. The exploitative nature of this, where you have some of these junior um, associates workers that may not have tenure or just may not be in the management, they believe in the mission and it's exploitative in the sense that they are working because they believe in the mission and they are willing to work more than those 40 hours and oftentimes not be compensated. Uh, but that's where you have some of the people on top actually taking um, more than the, and, and not really sharing the, the full pool. Um, yeah. What was your background in nonprofits be, before you went to the, your current position? Yeah, so um, I've worked in non-union nonprofits as well as union nonprofits. And what you said about um, particularly young people and other marginalized and vulnerable people um, basically taking on additional work and then not being compensated for it. Um, that's definitely unique to the nonprofit culture. I think that um, we're all giving so much of ourselves for the mission of the organization. And to be clear, you know, the reason that we all work at nonprofits is because we support the mission of the organization. There's so many messed up things in the world. And if you can, you know, be part of the solution in your day job um, and, and, you know, have that be a core part of your work, then that's amazing. But you know, we can't be replicating these same problematic, um, exploitative things that we see in other private sector jobs at our nonprofits. At the same time, we're you know publicly preaching against income inequality and um, racial inequality and that sort of thing. And so, um, yeah, that's that's definitely you know one of the things is is the pay inequality that you see in this kind of like guilt tripping people to sacrifice more of themselves for the sake of the mission. And, and that's definitely, you know, maybe that's not something you'd see in a, in a more traditional union contract, but there are ways that we can um, try to change the, the nature and the, and the culture of the organization um, through organizing and through a contract. 
And a lot of the people coming out of college are having very high debt levels and yet they're still making sometimes very junior salaries and with the hope that they're doing something right and they can move into a career in, in this field. And before opening up uh, with Patrick, and uh, I do want to ask you a little bit, um, a lot of nonprofits are oftentimes you have a very um, racially unequal distribution of power from my experience where you have a lot of white people who are generally in management and some of most of the minorities can oftentimes um, fall into more operational roles and, and less decision-making roles. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that, um, that type of work that you may be doing with, with your, your union and, and with the NPEU? Yeah, um, racial equity and is, is a huge issue in the nonprofit space. I mean, white supremacy culture infiltrates almost every aspect of nonprofits and honestly, every single every single nonprofit that we hear from, that's one of their main issues. Um, and and I think you know there are a lot of ways in which that we've tried to focus and solve this. But um, you know, pay equity is a huge issue. Making sure that people are being paid equally for the same work, um, creating uh, pathways to promotion and professional development, um, giving work creating more equitable uh, hiring processes and making sure that once people are hired, that they feel supported um, and that they have professional development and, and ways to grow. Um, these are all you know, ways in which I think a union can really, can really add some teeth to it. I mean, we've, we have a lot of organizations that you know, they will hear from, from uh, members, they'll come to us and say, you know, our, our manager tried to do this racial equity committee and, and you know, we had all these great ideas, but they were never ever implemented and there's nothing to actually hold them to it. Well, that's where when you have a union and you have a legally binding contract that says management has to pay people this amount for diversity, equity, inclusion training, or they have to have X number of trainings a year, that sort of thing. Um, if they're not sticking to that, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna grieve that and we're gonna make it management's problem that they're not sticking to it. So um, I think having, you know, having a union is a really crucial tool in shifting that culture. Yeah, Patrick, please. Thank you. Pleased to talk to you, Kayla. Uh, I'm from the History Podcast, so I guess it's predictable that I'll frame this question in this way, but people in this country and many others put their bodies on the line for decades to fight for first a 10-hour day and then an eight-hour day. And part of the argument that they made was that they could be both safer on their jobs and more productive by working for sort of limited stretches of time. And yet, at least from what I've read, I've heard many stories about people being called at all hours, people being available all the time. And, and while those of us who work from home are fortunate in that there's a certain safety to that, uh, home is work, is home, is work, is home, is work, it seems. Um, is there a union difference as far as these uh, as these sort of distinctions or the, the, these the, these sort of collapsed barriers between uh, you know professional the professional life and the private realm? Yeah, that's definitely an issue, particularly now during the pandemic, and also when a lot of our other workers are working from home, but. Um, yeah, you know, we can set up structures and boundaries in, in the contract. You can say that there are core work hours and email 
can only be answered during those core hours, um, you know, unless it's an emergency, but then, you know, not everything can be an emergency. Um, and that, you know, right now working from home, we're getting stipends for a lot of our workers um, to use for internet and cell phone um, bills, as well as um, some of our units have been able to get them for mental health resources so um, that they can deal with the stress of the pandemic and working from home. Um, and, and then also just, you know, having kind of a, a labor management committee that can deal with this stuff and, and it might be outside of the contract, but if it's, you know, a man, one particular manager is an issue and they're emailing their employees at all hours of the night, um, you know, the labor management committee can basically, you know, raise it and say, this manager is causing a huge morale issue with their employees. Like we need to address this. Um, and I think, you know, in the spirit of a pro worker organization like this, we wouldn't be wearing our employees out, you know, at all hours of the night. So I think there are a variety of tools that we use to address that. And that's only going to become a bigger problem, I think, um, in the, in the, you know, general workforce um, in the next few years. Mm. And first, I want to apologize, Mia Culpa. It's Caleb Plato. Sorry about that. I should have, uh, you know. Rhymes with Plato. Tell everyone that. <laughs> my, my mistake. Uh, but to get back onto the topic, uh, the focus on organizing during the pandemic. How do you do this over Zoom? How how is this going? Yes. Um, well, you know, we're on Zoom right now. Um, it's everyone is on Zoom all the time. I mean, a lot of people have uh, family obligations, but those who are able to get away, um, you know, it's been kind of just a lot of meetings and, and talking to people about, um, I think working from home is one thing about, we just talked about that with the environment is like, but then when we go back, I mean, we want to, you know, we have, when you have a union, management has a legal obligation to bargain with you over the work environment that you're going to be in. And we wanna make sure it's a safe work environment and that people who rely on public transportation are not exposed and that people who have childcare issues will be taken care of. And so um, I think that this is kind of creating a moment that you know, instead of just hunkering down and, and focusing on you know, getting, making it through the next year, I think that this is a real organizing moment um, for workers because they wanna have a voice and when they come back, because the consequences can be huge if they come back in an, in an unsafe environment. Could you talk a little bit about the latest victory? Yeah, so we just went public yesterday with the Animal Legal Defense Fund. We're really excited to have them. Um, they're the first animal rights organization that I know of that it has actually formed a union. Um, so we're really excited to have them. Um, they um, are a great unit. They're all over the country. Um, and they asked management for voluntary recognition yesterday. And we are hoping, we still haven't heard anything from management yet, but we are hoping that they do the right thing and recognize their workers and don't make them go to the Trump NLRB for a union election. Yeah, could you talk a little bit about that process? Maybe there's someone who's going to hear this or and is interested in you know, taking the steps to forming a union. What What is that process? Yeah, so first you wanna um, talk to your coworkers. So maybe talk to a small group of coworkers who you think might be on the same page as you, that they have had some of the same issues and that, they, that you all think that forming a union would really help them. Um, and then 
basically you want to do your research and find a union that you think could help you organize. And, um, you know, our union, the Nonprofit Professional Employees Union is one, but there are other, there are many other unions that are organizing nonprofits right now. Um, reach out to them, see, um, you know, connect with an organizer. But basically the process is that you're going to be talking to your coworkers and um, talking to them about the issues that they're having and how those could be solved through a union. Um, and then you're going to have people sign union cards, which basically means that the union is going to represent them legally um, through a contract. And then um, you will, uh, if you think that your management is, you know, a progressive environment and they are pro worker, um, we always want to ask them to recognize our union first, give them the chance to do the right thing. They can, you know, with a stroke of a pen, they can recognize your union. Um, for those that, you know, choose to, they're, they're more anti-union and they're going to make you jump through some hoops. Um, you know, we file union elections. Basically that means that you, um, go through the national labor relations board, uh, and then they will, um, mail you a ballot and then you will vote yes for your union. And if you have a majority of cards, then you will have a union basically two ways of getting the same thing. The election is a little bit more work, but um, they will both get you the union if, if you've done enough organizing on the back end. And then that's just the beginning because you still need to get a contract that yeah. uh, everyone can agree on and you need to be willing to walk, which um, can be very challenging when people are financially distressed. Mm -hmm. um, so before I uh, go to Patrick again, um, Chris Garlock shared this quote from uh, Action Squared President Brian Young. I'll just say for people who are thinking about starting a union at their place of work, but are a little nervous to try, the more nervous you are about the reaction of your organization, the more you probably need a union. Uh, can you just respond to that? Yeah, I mean, he's right on. The the there's there's all these paradoxes in you know in all of this and people think you know maybe if we you know maybe if we ask really nicely management will um grant us a union and if we you know if we don't offend them and all these sorts of things and and you know at the end of the day it's like if you had good management or if you had management that was willing to share power in the first place you probably wouldn't be in this situation um and so the more freaked out you are about being in a union, the, the point of a union is to be stronger than the individual. The point of the union is to make sure that bad things don't happen to you, or if they do, then management is held accountable for them. Um, and so I would just urge any, anyone who's listening who thinks, you know, I, I, I'm interested in union, but I'm a little scared about the process, you know, talk to a union organizer. If you, they'll, they will help you through it. They will help you um, come up with strategies to make sure that you're as strong as possible and that you can get a union um, as quickly and painlessly as, as possible um, and basically be on your path to getting a strong union contract and creating that change that you want. Great. And we have time for a couple more questions. Uh, Patrick, uh, do you have any questions? Many, uh, many white collar workers uh, live on work provided computers and uh, use work provided phones. And uh, as you've said, even some of the seemingly most uh, progressive nonprofits don't always seem to be quite as progressive as, uh, as the slogan. Um, 
does this make it complicated for workers coming forward or for your organizers? Yes, I would advise you to not use any work. Don't use your work computers. Don't use your work phones. Don't organize on work time. Um, if you're talking to your coworkers, don't use your work Slack or Teams or work email. You want to get everyone's private information. Um, you want to definitely create a private signal group or WhatsApp group with everyone. Um, the, you know, your employer has access to your emails, to um, everything you're doing on your work, uh, your work technology. So you just want to make sure that you're doing it on private uh, after work or on lunch breaks um, and on your own devices, just to make sure that in case management would retaliate against you, which we all know is illegal, but is hard to enforce, particularly under this administration. Um, you just want to be as safe as possible. So something that I've thought a lot about being in, I was inside the government, uh, international development, and a lot of international development got um, hollowed out in the 1990s. And a lot of the contracting, then they created an entire contracting body to help implement. And a lot of it are not-for-profit, uh, non-government organizations to carry out the functions of these government, uh, what the government used to do in, in foreign policy and international development. Meanwhile, a lot of the workers in the nonprofits at the lower levels don't have the union, don't have the protection, don't get the same pay as federal employees, don't get the same health care, the pension, all that other stuff. But the people on top of the nonprofits are getting quarter million dollars a year and things like that. Um, I guess going into 2021 with a new administration and obviously a lot of challenges with nonprofits and foundation funding, um, what, what is your, I guess, what's your hope and what are some of the opportunities that we can keep ensuring that we can unionize this entire sector that is oftentimes doing services for the government? Yeah, well, I would first of all urge the government to not keep outsourcing jobs that should be, you know, done by the government into the nonprofit industrial complex. Um, I think that, you know, uh, and then the jobs that are created in the nonprofit space, make sure that those are good jobs and that people are being paid equitably for them. You know, no one should be living, living in poverty or have to take on more than one job in order to make it in DC. Um, and so we want to make sure that, you know, those, those, uh, places can be easily unionized and that management doesn't fight those unions um, and that they also adopt, you know, some of the maybe good pay structures and that sort of thing that um, that the government already has in place. Great. So we're coming up at the half of the hour and you're always welcome to stay with us. But um, in closing, what are how, how can people learn more about your this union and uh, just going forward? Sure, they can find us um, online. Our website is npeu.org and you can find us on social media. Uh, we're on Twitter at Nonprofit Union and Instagram as well. And you can also find us on Facebook at the Nonprofit Professional Employees Union. Please reach out if you have any questions. Um, we can talk to you or we can connect you with one of our other friends at another union who might be able to help you. Awesome. And do you have time to stick around or do you have to Get, get yeah, definitely. Okay, cool, cool. Well, we are going to go into our music for the middle half, which is a labor song from the pandemics related to our next guest. And let me just uh, put that on right now.
lullaby by the pandemics and we're lucky now to be joined by Tim Sheard the the writer of that song and the editor of the pandemic nurses diary an exciting new publication from hardball press can, can you show us a copy of the pandemic there we go pleased to pleased to have you joining us Tim how are you doing this evening I'm doing great thank you so much Patrick now, I was lucky enough to read the, uh, the Pandemic Nurses Diary recently, and it includes a lot of, uh, in some cases, quite harrowing stories from the early stages of the pandemic, where we just see really quite haphazard conditions in many cases. And I know you were a nurse for 40 years. Uh, did these stories surprise you when, when people started reaching out to you and can you tell us a bit about how this how this publication came to be yeah these stories were quite shocking i have been worked in intensive cares for 40 years i'd never been in war and the nurses and other healthcare workers were facing battlefield conditions in the spring in new york city there were literally bodies piling up in temporary morgues outside the hospital and tents so it was quite shocking for me, but it was even more shocking to the workers because they had to go in every day back into this battlefield and it was uh, quite traumatic for them. 
And how, how did you go about, can you tell us a bit about the, the process? How did you go about assembling this, this, this diverse collection of, of stories from uh, nursing professionals? Sure, when I'd been in contact with a number of friends in various hospitals around New York City, and one nurse in particular, Nurse T, who is fond of my writing, uh, sent me some text messages about how, how difficult it was, what she was facing, all the codes, three patients dying on one shift. She'd never seen that before. And she wrote to me and she wrote, OMG, Tim, when this is all over, you've got to write a book about it. And I said, no, Nurse T, you've got to write the book. So I used my experience as a mentor to writers uh, because I've been a mentor through the National Writers Union for decades. And I helped her develop her voice, flesh out her diary entries, and then format them into a, into a real readable book. You okay there? And I've read many, I've read, you know, many of, many of these stories. I'm sure a lot of people have, have seen nurses and doctors interviewed on CNN and in the newspapers and everywhere else, but can you give people a bit of a taste of how, how is it different when, uh, when, when workers are not subject to, you know, the editors at AOL Time Warner or whoever else? What makes sure, well, it really different? Of course, during, during the pandemic, uh, there were a number of interviews in the mainstream press. You read them in the New York Times and The Guardian. And they were, for the most part, heartfelt. You know, they certainly were honest, but they, the staff really were not able to express uh, some of the depths of the anxiety, the dangers that they faced, the horrific conditions, and also some of the, uh, some of the failings of our healthcare system, because uh, healthcare you know, is not financed uh, the way it should be. In other words, the, when it comes to spending the money from the taxes that are collected, uh, healthcare often comes last, especially communities of color and poor communities. And so they really were not prepared for, for this avalanche of patients. They didn't have the resources, they didn't have the supplies, and this was not reported uh, really fully in the mainstream press. And so I felt strongly that with, through Nurse T, we could get this message out to the public. And many of these, uh, many of these professionals describe their patients, describe their daily routines, I mean, in some cases, they describe the, uh, the the trash bags that they have to punch holes in to put over uh, uh, over themselves to protect themselves. They don't describe themselves as superheroes, and this is a, a rhetoric that's taken on. I drive past GW Hospital sometimes, George Washington University Hospital, and there's a lot. There's a must be a forty foot sign on the wall that says something along the lines of "Superheroes work here." And there's a picture of a nurse. It may be a nurse. It may be a doctor wearing a cape. Has this, has this rhetoric served nurses well, being described in this way? I think it's. I don't think it's. It's fair. I mean, it's true that they're heroic, but really, what the staff are doing, and they'll tell you, they're just doing their job. They're doing the job they've been doing their whole life. Um, and what's, you know, what's. Uh, uh, terrible about it and difficult about it is they're not given the resources that they need to really do their job well. So yes, they're courageous, but when you talk to a nurse, talk to a doctor, they're just doing their job. Uh, to, they don't feel like they don't feel like they're superheroes. Let's put it that way. Mm. Uh, I, I know Evan, you've got a, a question, and we've also got uh, a clip that you've helped prepare for us. 
if you don't mind clearing that up. Uh, good to see you again. And uh, Tim and I collaborated a little bit on some of the essays that create some audio essays. And so I'm just going to pull a short clip from one of the essays that is focusing, it, it's called the ICU. And um, a friend of mine uh, got me in touch with a nurse from Riverside in California who was able to read uh, the essay. And so she also was um, profoundly affected by these essays. And this is her voice, Kim Hoyer from Riverside. So this is a very short clip. With our fearless nurses A Lily helping, I settle the patient into bed, adjust the intravenous infusion and tie his wrist to the bed frame to keep him from pulling out his breathing tube. Finally, I look for the first time into the man's face. It is a handsome face. It is a face that once laughed and smiled and winked at his children. I know he will laugh no more. The cold ones always code. They always die. So obviously it's, it's pretty powerful to, I mean, the, the healthcare workers are constantly, you know, at the, the front lines of, of helping people on, on the verge of passing. Um, I guess looking at this book, uh, Tim, I, I really appreciate the fact that culture influences policy and politics as much as anything, art and literature. And so how can we help in promoting this book? Obviously we're here talking about it now, but I guess going forward um, in the, you know, the coming months and years, how, how can we get more focus of labor in our entertainment and in our culture and those type of things? Well, it would be wonderful if more of the major labor unions, local and national, promoted labor arts because the labor arts give voice to labor's message and labor's needs and not only our message but also our integrity our value our worth and that comes through labor arts whether it's uh, poetry song music painting and if if the unions would promote them for example they all have monthly newsletters and if their editors were allowed to write about labor arts and what's coming out and give it to their members, then their members could participate and enjoy this art and it would help spread the word. And it's a great challenge just getting my book reviewed in the nursing unions. It's a huge challenge. And I don't know quite why it's difficult, but many of them resist um, writing about and reviewing or supporting labor arts. So as much as we can promote that from the AFL down to the locals, I think that would be helpful. Yeah, we have to create our own our own entertainment, our own production, our own publishing houses. So it's it's some great work you're doing with Hardball Press. Thank you. We also have Kayla Blado from the National uh, from sorry, I'm sorry, from the Nonprofit Employees Union on the line. Kayla, what what do you think about what you've been hearing? Um, the the audio you played and Tim's book, it's just so powerful. Um, it makes me so sad and then it makes me so mad. Like none of this needed to happen. I mean, um, uh, my organization EPI where I work, um, we talked about, you know, Trump could have used the De Defense Authorization, Authorization Act um, or Defense Production Authorization Act to help, you know, manufacture better PPE for healthcare workers. Um, it's just, you know, 
I agree with Tim saying, you know, calling them superheroes, I think almost kind of skirts the issue that they're humans. I mean, would you want to be working in this environment? Would, would you want your family to, or friends to be working in this environment? I mean, it's just, it's, it's horrific that we expect so much from workers. Um, and I think, you know, Tim talking about labor arts, I think is, is really important. Um, I think, I, yeah, I, I guess I hadn't even, I hadn't even thought about that recently. It just seems like, you know, such an urgent crisis that there isn't any time for art or music or reflection or anything, but that that's probably one of the most important ways to get through such a crisis. So I'm really looking forward to reading your book and um, getting more engaged in the labor arts space. John? Thank you, Kayla. And you know, these songs I've written, I wrote these songs for my beloved uh, co-workers. And through the spring, I, I said to them on the phone and uh, over and again, I've, I've never been more proud to be a nurse and I've never loved my coworkers so much. And I think it's important, you know, in New York at 7 p.m., we would, people would hang out the windows and applaud and bang pots uh, to thank the essential workers, all the essential workers, you know, the people in uh, transit and in, and in the food service. Um, and the more that you can do through your union and, the, and through all of us through our unions to, to affirm the value of these workers, then the more they're going to be able to negotiate for their power because they have to, you know, convince the public that they're worth their contract. I also like, uh, I did get this book, uh, The Man Who Fell From the Sky, and uh, it's a Bill Fletcher Jr. Uh, we, have, we had him on the live stream on the, uh, around election uh, week, and uh, you're also uh, doing fiction. So could you talk a little bit about uh, the fiction that you've written with the Lenny Moss series? Yeah, thank you. So, also a writer yourself, not just a publisher and nurse. So thank you. So I have nine mystery novels in a series, a crime series, and it's set in a fictional hospital, of course, since that's where I work. And the, the amateur sleuth, the detective, is a hospital custodian and a union shop steward, a very militant union shop steward. And the way the story goes, which is typical in crime stories, is that an innocent person is arrested for a murder. In this case, a hospital worker, probably a black worker. And so his friends go to their best steward, who's always getting them out of trouble, even when the trouble is like with their wife, not with the boss. And he says, you got to get him out of jail. And he says, what am I going to do? He says, you've got to find the killer. And so he becomes a detective. And the nice thing about it is that it's an enjoyable story. But in the course of the story, uh, as a shop steward, he always engages with the bosses on some, uh, some, some uh, conflict, you know, some issue some labor issue, whether it's worker safety or overwork or, or negotiating uh, uh, unfair firing. And so through the course of reading, you know, an enjoyable novel, you learn about what unions do and how they advocate for their workers. And, and I like how you got, you started part of, you got into publishing because you published this with another per, another organization and it went out of print. So you, you just took it into your own hands, which is great. Well, that's what we do when we're organizers, right? We're organizing, and if one if one campaign fails, and we try another tactic, we hit it. You hit a brick wall, you go over it, you go under it, you know, you don't give up. 
one of the uh, one of the things we mentioned earlier when we were talking to Caleb was uh, the level of burnout among uh, non-profit union employees. Uh, I understand. I mean, I, I recall at the end of uh, uh, the pandemic nurses' diary, you have a, a section on meditations. Can you tell us a bit about that, Tim? Sure. Well, meditation is is one way uh, to try and. Uh, work through your feelings of anger or sadness, your sense of isolation. And through the meditation, the, the exercises, uh, you imagine a scenario where you can get past it. For example, uh, when, when a beloved patient dies, you imagine speaking at the funeral, which you can't do because of COVID, but you imagine speaking to the family and embracing the family and hugging the family. And in that thought process and that meditation it helps you work through the grief at the loss of so many you know your so many patients so there are these meditations that help you get through many of these difficult feelings of guilt even uh, for surviving when your co-workers died um, and they're writing exercises where you can write out your thoughts and your feelings you can write a letter to a beloved patient you can write a letter uh, to a family member you can write a letter to a co-worker who's died and all these ways are, are helping you to, to get past that trauma that you, so many have experienced. It's, it's not the brass tax of, sort of dollars and cents, but is there a way that the union can uh, can be a part of this this recovery on the part of workers? Sure. Well, you know, I'm not much of a I'm not much of a I'm not a very good capitalist, Patrick. So I tend to discount my books pretty heavily when unions buy them. So if a union wants to buy copies to give to their members. Um, I discount it way down. So uh, it's really, my goal is to get as many books out to workers as I can. And so if dropping the price means more people get to read it, then, then I'm certainly happy to do it. They can, they can call me up, they can email me to Hardball Press, and I'm happy to cut them a very, very good deal. So you also have uh, children's stories that you've written about. And uh, could you talk a little bit about some of those projects? Sure. Well, um, when we teach children with story, uh, it's important sometimes to teach them about labor and about social justice, which we see more and more. We've seen more Black Lives Matter stories for children, um, uh, gender rights for children. And so I have labor and social justice rights for children. They're all in English and Spanish, so they're bilingual. So they, they, they reach a wide community. And I have a enchanting Christmas story called Good Guy Jake, which is uh, based on a true story. A sanitation worker in New York City was fired because he was taking toys out of the trash. And he took the toys home and he repaired them and painted them and he gave them to children at a local shelter at Christmas time. And it's against city regs. So we wrote a story where the union files for arbitration. And even though it's a losing case, they win it because the children come with their toys and they testify on behalf of the worker that Jake, the sanitation worker, taught them to believe in Christmas. So this is a way to teach young children about how unions advocate for workers and what real justice is about. Um, and again, if unions want to get these books for their, for their members, they're very, very inexpensive if, if they want to, you know, buy, you know, get them in bulk. Good guy, Jake. We need to get that book in uh, national curriculum for all elementary schools, you know. Indoctrinate them early. Teach them early. Yes, that's a better word. Absolutely. Uh, sorry. Uh, 
Kayla, many of your many of your members might not have necessarily experienced quite the same sort of frontline strains as as the nurses that Tim refers to. But um, is, is there some? I don't know. Do you feel that is there some sort of meditative process for uh, for for many white collar workers who are working from home to sort of transitioning to whatever happens next? Yeah, um, I think that that would be really helpful. We're all facing really stressful environments right now. Um, I think, you know, any type of meditation and then, you know, kind of like uh, working that into the self-care narrative, um, but doing it for a reason to kind of create strength and stability so that you can continue doing your job um, and continue with supporting other workers and, and your own union, I think is really important. Um, I also think that, you know, when Tim is talking about these workers and in, in these like horrific environments, it, um, I think nonprofit workers feel, you know, really fortunate that we um, don't have, you know, that we're not being worn down day in and day out by these horrible work environments of being in a hospital during COVID. But um, I think, you know, we're always looking for opportunities to um, show solidarity and support for essential workers. And, um, you know, and we might have different capacity or different talents that we could share that might be beneficial. So um, if, if anyone listening um, wants to reach out, we're definitely open to working together on any sort of um, essential worker initiatives that could help strengthen unions right now. Uh, Chris Garlock is uh, weighing in and uh, just wanted to kind of wonder, Tim, about why art is important to this movement? Oh, that's a lovely question. Uh, lovely question. There's, um, there's a very smart professor uh, in Chicago, uh, Northeastern University in Chicago, Tim Libretti, who teaches uh, literature. And he says that the story, the novel, the short story, the poem even, the story is an imaginary way to solve a real social problem. That we solve our problems whether it's finding love, finding a job, finding justice. Uh, we, we, we work out these problems through fiction and they teach us how to deal with social problems. And art is essential from, from the earliest preliterate days when people told stories, when the, when the storyteller was cherished for the ability to you know, educate and enrapture an audience. Stories are so important for, for informing and educating and inspiring uh, about social justice issues and how we can address them, how we can solve them, how we can conquer them. So the arts are really so important and uh, they they deserve much more, obviously, support from, from all the institutions. How do you write fiction when real life is so crazy right now? It's true. It's hard to write fiction. So it's curious, um, at my age, 72, I've made the transition apparently from writing novels to writing melody and, and song lyrics. Um, and it is a different kind of writing, but it, it's, um, it's just another way of telling a story and touching people's heart because a good story, you want a good story to move someone. You want it to make them laugh or cry. Um, want them to feel something and songs do the same do the similar thing so it's all it's all of a piece and where does it come from nobody knows nobody knows but this creative spirit it just bubbles up out of some mysterious place in our soul and uh, many people during this 
COVID, when they're shut in, have discovered creative abilities they didn't know they had. It's been one of the, you know, few positive things that's come out of it. Have you got any hints, Taylor? Is anything that you've discovered that has? Yeah. Uh, yeah of oh, sorry. Go ahead, Kayla. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, I think it, you know, it resonates that it's kind of something in you that drives you to, to pursue arts. And I think uh, it's a similar kind of drive that that causes our members to pursue types of social justice initiatives. And um, I think probably what drives a lot of us to be in labor as well. It's some type of connection to other people and expression of um, our own power and that we don't normally get an opportunity to do in kind of day-to-day -day life. And you have an, and you've been taking music lessons as well, Tim. Yes, music. Yeah, I've been taking guitar lessons uh, from a fellow in New Orleans, and he's such a gifted teacher that he's just opened up the whole world of melody, and syncopation and rhyme which I didn't know was there, but he, he, he unlocked, he unlocked this box and it's, it's just been bubbling up. I've been, I started a new song today about what is the, what is the, what is a good life? What is a good life all about? Is it about all about me or is it about us? It's about giving or is it about taking? And the songs, they just write themselves. If I just let, let them flow, it's just extraordinary. Hmm. And the, the process was really interesting on how you put this album together, the pandemics during during COVID. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that process? Sure. Well, with the COVID restrictions and the social distancing, uh, to form a band, we could never actually play together as a group. It was just too dangerous. So um, I would bring in a, a singer, play the acoustic guitar, and lay down one vocal track and then bring in another singer, or I might have two vocalists, and one would sit by the open window, masked, and then when the singer would unmask, you know, sing the song, and then mask back on. And then I'd take my, my laptop and my microphone, and I'd take it to the bass player six blocks away, and he'd lay down the bass track. Uh, and then I'd take all the tracks to the, to the drummer, and he'd go to his studio, and he'd lay down the drum tracks, and some uh, some musicians they had to email it through the cloud or i'd send them the song and they'd lay down violin tracks or slide guitar tracks and they'd send me those tracks and then i'd integrate them all through GarageBand. and so we have a virtual band that's never actually played together and we won't be able to play together until until we're vaccinated but we still managed to put together a, a heck of a good album so we have about one minute left until we get to our two minute two minutes in labor history. So I guess, could you talk um, how people can find your your books and uh, how people can support uh, labor writers and uh, labor music? Sure, if they go to hardballpress.com, throw in the hardball, right on the home page, they'll see a link to the pandemic nurse's diary. They'll see a link to the music and all the music is on my page. It's all free to listen to. And then there are lots of books, uh, stories, and also organizing tools. I have some really powerful tools for organizing unions and for building union solidarity for internal organizing as well. Uh, I call them power tools for labor. So if you go to Hardwell Press, you'll find some great resources. And again, steep discounts because I'm not in this for the money. Tim Sheard, Hardball Press, thank you very much. Kayla Blado from the Nonprofit Employees Union 
and Patrick Dixon co-hosting and Chris Garlock behind the scenes. Uh, we are going to go into labor history in two, and then we're going to have a station identification for one minute. Uh, everyone is welcome to join us. And then we usually have a debrief at 8 p.m. where members of the Labor Radio Podcast Network jump on. You're more than welcome to stay as guests. And uh, yeah, we're going to go into labor history then. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1995. That was the day machinists at Boeing ended their 69-day strike. 33,000 workers won increased pay and health benefits. They also won job protections against subcontracting. Contractual clauses against subcontracting were important, especially given the fact that NAFTA had just been passed two years earlier. The contract specified that the union be given three months notice regarding any plans to subcontract out work. It also incentivized keeping work in-house by calling for increased benefits to laid-off workers and mandatory retraining and re-employment of workers displaced by subcontracting. These provisions came after IAM members rejected two previous contract offers. They were furious at the initial demands for concessions, even as Boeing executives were awarded multi-million dollar stock options. At the time, the IAM and its members lauded this as a total victory. For a few years, Boeing abided by the contract they signed. Subsequently, Boeing bosses have routinely violated their agreements. Many of these provisions were lost in the 2002 contract and then recaptured in 2008. But the next contract negotiations witnessed a renewed fight for job security. Over the past two decades, Boeing workers have seen massive layoffs, subcontracting, pension freezes and phase-outs, and relocation of their work, all while the company rakes in billions of dollars in profits, gets lucrative tax breaks and subsidies, and has close to 5,000 back orders for planes. Subcontracting clauses are important, but can only work when they are enforced. Victories like the winning strike in 1995 can serve as a reminder for workers today that if they stand together in solidarity, they can win better wages, hours, and conditions at the bargaining table. Better listen, my brother, cause if you do, you can hear There are voices still calling from across the years And they're crying across the ocean, they're crying across the land And they will until we all come to understand None of us are free, none of us are free 